Our American Stories, and this actually sounds like a little bit of the synthesizer beats from Don't You Want Me Baby. Is this some uh, 80s pad music, Jesse? No, it's actually Chromio. It's pretty new stuff. So it's new old stuff? Yeah, it's the new, like, throwback, hi-fi synthesizers. Yeah. Cool. A little more? Funky bass line? Yeah. I'm liking it. <laughs> Are we going to be talking to these guys? You said we're going to be talking to the Chromio guys? Yeah, soon. We'll have them on. Okay, great. That's a, it's like a big... So what do we say? We can't say we can't say the F word anymore. So we say... Uh, um, what do we say? Ch- weight challenged? Weight challenged oh, Arab. Oh, fat. A, yeah. yeah, right, fat. There's, a, there's, a, there's an overweight <laughs> Arab guy. And then there's like a Jewish guy. And they, they get on the stage and make this music. And I'm looking forward to talking to those guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Playing some of Jesse and Alex's favorite music here on Our American <laughs> Stories. And recently, one of our producers came across a blog post at herviewfromhome.com. By the way, that's... Uh, Why were you there? You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, yeah, but that's okay. It's, it's like not, something it my mom liked on Faith, Facebook. this wasn't you? This wasn't you? No, Faith is going, not me. <laughs> and by the way, this is an online woman's magazine with daily articles about family, kids, fashion, health, recipes, faith. I mean, it sounds like a, a good site. And there was a post from Debbie Baisden. And the title of the post is sure to grab your attention. And the content is sure to pull at your heartstrings. And for good reason. Debbie agreed to read it for us. And here she is with her piece called Stop Being a Butthole Wife. Stop being a butthole wife. No, I'm serious. End it. Let's start with the laundry angst. I get it. The guy can't find the hamper. It's maddening. It's insanity. Why? Why must he leave piles of clothes scattered the same way that the toddler does, right? I mean, grow up and help out around here, man. There is no laundry fairy. What if that pile of laundry is a gift in disguise from a God you can't yet see? Don't roll your eyes. Hear me out on this one. I was a butthole wife until my husband died. The day my husband left earth for heaven, all of my marriage problems vanished. There was no one to fuss at, negotiate with, or play possum at bedtime. You know, when you pretend you're asleep to bypass sex. Marriage is designed to be a reflection of Christ's love for his people. It's supposed to be beautifully harmonious and intimate How often I screwed that up with bickering and manipulating. I wanted a perfect husband who acted how I wanted. And if that didn't happen, well, butthole wife was in full effect. If only he could understand how right I was and how wrong he'd always be. I needed to instruct him, question him, and remind him of his shortcomings. After all, I was his helpmate. The reality is, I wasn't helping him or our marriage. By pointing out each fault, I was poisoning the relationship. Oh, it was still a good marriage, and we deeply loved each other. But it was not what it could have been. And now it was too late. 
Days after his funeral, I stared at our dirty clothes basket that sat atop our dryer, knowing his clothes were inside. I sighed so deeply. Before me was the last load of laundry I would ever wash for that sweet man. There would be no more dirty socks to pick up around the house. Ever. A week before, I would have rolled my eyes at that basket. But now, it held priceless treasures. I waited weeks to wash those clothes. My heart ached for dirty socks to once more be a part of my days. Those messes dotted around the house are reminders of God's gifts to us. Like Jesus, we have the opportunity to demonstrate love by serving those we live with. And the last time I checked, not a single person is perfect. How many times had my husband kept quiet, listened, and endured? He shared no list of ways that I needed refinement. He simply loved me. Those clothes were painfully cleaned and boxed away or donated. The tears, countless. And God, the lover of my soul in his infinite mercy, later gave me a special gift. He has allowed me to love again, to wear a second wedding dress, and to be a better wife. I married a wonderful man. I am still a butthole wife, but I am working on edifying the man who provides for my sons and me. I now strive to hug more and nag less. My goal is to make him feel respected, important, valued. I want to live love. Recently, I walked into the master bedroom and I stopped, nearly bursting into tears. I saw a pile of dirty clothes that my new husband had abandoned on the floor. As I stared at the pile, I smiled. I knew he had hurried to change out-of-work clothes into comfy clothes so he could spend more time with his new family. He had chosen what is more important. I happily scooped the treasures into my arms and carried them to the washing machine. I get to do this. I get to serve. I get to live with a wonderful man who ditches laundry for people. Let us not become weary in doing good. Galatians 6, 9. And what a beautiful piece from Debbie Bazin. We started off sort of goofing off, but boy, that it turned all of us around. Something to think about. And we like to do that here on Our American Stories. Turn the tables. And uh, we're all cheering up a little bit here, and hopefully you are too, and hopefully... That moves you to be a better husband, a better wife, a better friend, a better everything. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and from time to time, our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling, so good, so spiritually good, that we must take the time to sit back, close our eyes, and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment. Join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art. It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3,800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, a dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop from a single mother and Renee Zellweger you had me at hello hi this is Jesse Edwards for our American stories and what you just heard is it's completely true uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire I, I first heard about it uh, a few years back and then it just kind of disappeared and I forgot about it until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely, the idea of having just one movie to watch. I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I, I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? 
it depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years. Um, and, you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement in my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So, um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in, uh, in media and all of us in the group are, are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So um, yeah, over fourteen thousand copies. We we hope to we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space there. I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie, and where did they even come from? So the Jerry Maguire, was, it was really just the, uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media, I think. The, there, there are many, many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we've decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other, um, the other footage that we use for, for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000 plus copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS. In our efforts to 
save and preserve these artifacts of our culture. Um, we are working with a team of, of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to, to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, We've just joked about all the many things that we could do with him, and the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the pyramid. We're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's, and uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into, the, into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry Maguire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything is terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, then they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer, a.k.a. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page for our American stories. And Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's <laughs> myself. There's always the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is our American stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. <laughs> A lot more of them. our American stories. 
And every once in a while, we like to bring you back to an old speech. And there are so many great ones. And today, on this day in history in 2011, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia delivered this opening statement to the Senate Judiciary Committee on a subject he cared about, American exceptionalism. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to the two hours we did on Scalia, one about his life, a celebration of his life, soon after his death, and then another which covered his funeral. And we do this on Our American Stories because, well, no one else does. And when he died, the only thing people talked about was who's going to follow Justice Scalia. What we were interested in was who was Justice Scalia. And so he starts off this speech by identifying a hole in our education system. I speak uh, to students, especially law students, but also college students and even high school students quite frequently about the Constitution. because I feel that we're, we're, we're not teaching it very well. Um, I, I speak to law students from the, the best law schools, people presumably especially interested in the law, and I ask them, how many of you have read the Federalist Papers? And, and Well, a lot of hands will go, no, not just number 48 and the big ones. How many of you have read the Federalist Papers, cover to cover? Never more than about 5%. And that, that is very sad, I mean, if, especially if you're interested in the Constitution. Here's a document that says what the framers of it thought they were doing. It, it's such a, a profound exposition of political science that it is studied in, in political science courses in Europe. And yet we, we have raised a generation of Americans who are not familiar with it. And it's so true. Here Scalia continues by asking an obvious question with a not necessarily obvious answer. So, when, when I speak to these groups, I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in, in our Constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, and you will get this from almost any American, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. (laughs) The Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests. And anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course. Just words on paper. What, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is 
What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787, they didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. And by the way, if you get a chance to visit Philadelphia, it's so worth it. I took my family last year, the National Constitution Center, as fine a place to go and learn about the Constitution, perfectly adequate for kids and adults alike. Go to Assembly Hall, see the Liberty Bell. It's amazing what happened there. And you see George Washington's chair sitting up there in the center atop everything with a little sun at the top. Just a great trip. So if lists of rights can be empty promises, what, Justice Scalia, does matter? The real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that, that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. And when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary. Because the Europeans don't even try to divide the, the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, The chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and the the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When when there's a disagreement, they just kick him out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at the system and they say, well, it passes one house, it doesn't pass the other house. Sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party. It passes both, and then this president who has a veto power vetoes it, and they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock. Gridlock. You hear that word a lot, as if it's a pejorative. Plenty of other folks think it's a pejorative, too. But take a listen to Scalia's position. They talk about a dysfunctional government because there's disagreement and and, and they and the framers would have said yes that's exactly the way we set it up we we wanted this to be power uh, contradicting power because the main uh, the main ill that beset us as as Hamilton said in in the Federalist when he talked about a separate Senate he said yes it seems inconvenient but in as much as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation it won't be so bad this is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, 
which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection. If, if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair, it doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into, into, this, into this complex system. So Americans should, uh, should appreciate that, and, and they should learn to love the gridlock. Uh, it's, it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will, will be good legislation. It's so true, and this is what Scalia was at and what much of his mindset was about, and it was about the dispersal of power, and that is pushing the power back closest to the people, and that's why you had these three, Article 1, 2, and 3 are so important in the Constitution. And again, most citizens know nothing about this, and as I went to a very good law school, I went to the University of Virginia Law School, we barely learned this stuff. It was opinions about this, opinions about that. But the core argument, which is why was there a constitution, what purpose does it serve, and it was to not aggregate too much power in any one place, because that's not good. We love hearing these old speeches, and on this day in history, we hear Justice Scalia, and as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all of the things in life that matter. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, or you're just a little too old to go to college, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and catch all of their great coursework. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to be talking to songwriter and singer John Paul White, a real talent. And you're listening to the song Poison and Wine, which propelled the Civil Wars. He was a lead singer. It was a duo, actually. And this song propelled them to the top of the charts and to Grammy territory. Let's take a listen. joined by John Paul White and we're joined because his new album Beulah is in record stores everywhere we always start off all of our interviews real simply uh, and that is where were you born and who are your parents and how did both of those things impact who you are and what you're doing today I was born uh, in Tuscumbia, Alabama at uh, Helen Keller Hospital I was not Helen Keller Hospital at the time. It was Colbert County Hospital, but it, it changed names later. And, and yes, that Helen Keller. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, Ivy Green is just down the street where she learned how to say, how to sign water. You can still go there today. Uh, I was born to Mac 
and Mary White. And they actually grew up on the Tennessee state line on the on the Tennessee side. So we were living down there when I was born. And before I started school, they moved up to the Tennessee state line back to where their roots were, which was about 20 miles north of the Shoals. And I you know, lived there until after high school and moved back to the Shoals at that point. But my dad was a... Uh, a farmer, a chicken farmer, and my mom was a, uh, a laborer on that farm. You know, she she probably you know worked as hard as any woman I, I'd ever met, and uh, so my formative years were all out there on thirty acres, taking care of poultry and and living out in the middle of nowhere um, in rural Tennessee, and it was a it was a pretty blissful existence. You know, we. Um, my dad had worked for Ford Motor Company in the Shoals, and then it shut down and put a whole lot of people out of work. And so we subsisted solely on that farm for quite a while until he found work again. And you um, couldn't have told us any any different that that life was any different for anybody else because we were miles from the next family. Went to a little small church run. Um, private school um and everybody else was in the exact same boat as we were so it was there was never any sort of class or social status you know we were all just all struggling equally and um um, it was a it was a really good really good childhood to be honest yep and uh, it's something i experienced i grew up uh, john in the new york area but on my first uh, tour with my dad, my dad and I would drive around the country uh, together alone and and spend some time visiting Civil War sites and battlefields. But that wasn't what we were really doing. We were going out and seeing our country. And uh, yeah. something struck me about the way people in the South, and particularly the rural South, lived. And it had nothing to do, John, with the picture I had in my head from the movies I saw and the imagery I saw, particularly how white and black people lived together. Uh, particularly how how just kind and and warm uh, Southern people were, and I think so much of the simple nature of their lives. And I don't mean that they they were simple people, but that the lives yeah. were sort of stripped down, and life became actually quite pleasant for for so many people. Uh, talk about talk about that. And you've been around the block, so you're a guy who grew up like that, yeah. but has also been around big cities, could live anywhere you want to live in the world. And where do you live now? I, I live right there in Florence, Alabama, right there where I was born. And I have no intentions of going anywhere else. I mean, I'm able to, you know, take care of my wanderlust by doing the touring thing. I get to visit lots of great cities and eat lots of great food and meet lots of great people. But, you know, every single experience cements my belief that, you know, the shoals, the Tennessee Valley is where I was always meant to be and where I meant to stay. And, you know, I've got small kids and, and a beautiful wife and I'm gone a lot. And so it makes a lot more sense for, for them to have a, a support network close by, a lot of family close by, and low crime rate and, you know, cost of living is low. And, yep. and just, a, it's it's a really good existence, but, you know, you you made a you made a good point about how you know things really were just boiled down to their very simplest uh structure growing up in the south when i did uh you know pre k 
cable, pre-internet, pre-cell phones, pre-all that stuff. And, um, you know, I'll be one of those old fuddy-duddies that, uh, you know, miss the old days. I, I wish my kids could grow up in that existence. And, and you know, we, we try to keep that sort of mentality going in our house. We try to to not be too connected and to and be aware of the world within your reach uh, and not uh, i think you know i think both worlds can can coexist if you you know if you do it judiciously but um it's uh, I, I miss i miss those days of of having so much less distractions and having more laser focus on what was going on right in front of you and when we come back, more from John Paul White, his new record, Beulah. Go to Amazon and get it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Ice, water, drink it down till it's gone. I saw her. Drink it down till it's gone Oh, well, there's always second time around So bitter in my heart in my This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to John Paul White's What So, a terrific new song on his new album, Beulah. John Paul's recording his first solo record in many years, and it's great. Now we're rejoined by John Paul White, and we love talking about locations. You draw a line around Memphis and go out 300 miles, John, and, and it's almost all of American music. It's crazy. Yeah. What is it about the soil? That's definitely true. What is it about the soil? Uh, what do you think? Have you thought about it? Have yeah, you pondered it? I, I have a bit. You know, I, I'm, I'm asked that question, obviously, being from one of those uh Centers, uh, I am definitely asked that question: What's in the water? What's the deal? Why? Why is there so many people? And even to this day, you know, with uh, you know Gary Nichols of Steel Drivers and Jason Isbell and Alabama Shakes and Anderson East and you know, Dylan LeBlanc, there's so many, so many artists doing it and doing it well. Um, I think you know some of us nowadays are standing on the shoulders of the guys that came before us, mm-hmm. and we'd be perfectly fine with saying that but obviously how did they make it happen how did that come about i think you know spooner oldham and i have talked about this and spooner is a legendary session player from back in the day and till today he still plays on sessions for us at single lock records our little label back home and he he you know he 
he demystifies it. He doesn't think that there's anything in the water. Or anything. You know, he, he kind of shrugs when people say that. But, yep. And I guess I do, too. Um, I'd love to be a romantic about it and say there's something spiritual there and that it's in the water. And that feels good. And who, you know, who could say? But uh, I will say that, you know, my take has always been that, and this is obviously not exclusive to the South or to the Shoals, but for whatever reason, there was this perfect alignment of poverty, you know, a little bit of ignorance and not, not in a, you know, non-intelligent kind of way, but, you know, people like Rick Hall that came along and had had nothing but had all the drive in the world and could not be told you can't start a studio in the middle of nowhere. You can't cut hits in the middle of nowhere. You can't have a record label in the middle of nowhere. And he had just enough cojones to tell people, you know, just watch me, yep. watch me do this. Yep. And he was smart enough to sense great talent around him when he saw it and exploit the heck out of it. And he'd be the first to tell you. And the thing that really put us on the map, um, was when people like Jerry Wexler at Atlantic, uh, up in New York yep. took a, took a notion when he saw, and, uh, you know, Rick deserves the credit for cutting, you know, you know, you better move on and, and, and things like that. Jimmy Hughes and steal away and stuff like that. Yep. But he got Jerry's ear and then Jerry started sending Wilson and Aretha and Clarence Carter and all this stuff started coming down. You know, there should be a huge statue to, to Wexler in my town. And, you know, one of these days there will be because he's still revered by all those guys. But you take that, you take some of the stack stuff coming over, you take some of the Motown stuff coming down, you know, and then it just exploded. But it was a bunch of a bunch of funky white dudes that didn't know any better that they couldn't do it. Yep. They just said, well, why can't we? Yep. Let's just... Let's just tackle it and see what happens. Yeah, and, the kind uh, of ignorance that almost borders on innocence, in, in a sense. Yeah. I, I didn't yeah, know. I could not know. a better word, but, but that's definitely the truth. But all of those guys came from the same walk of life, and none of them had any money. None of them had any prospect for any money. None of them had any training. Any, yep. you know, they were not skilled musicians. They just played what they felt. They played what they saw at the local club. They played what they heard on old, you know, on Otis Redding records or, or even earlier records than that and just made it up as they went. Yeah, and you know, Jerry Wexler, I think what's most interesting about him, and here's a here's a Jewish record producer from the biggest and most powerful music city in the country, I would guess at the time. Uh, L.A. had not yet uh, sort of metastasized as another center of yeah. uh, of music, and Nashville still wasn't quite, it, it had one idiom, it had country, but here's sure. New York City. And Jerry Wexler did not suffer from what lots of people suffered from at the time, which I believe was re- regional bigotry. That is that a lot of yeah. Americans have a vision of the South, that nothing good could come from there, and that this man had the vision to say, wow, these swampers, listen to this. What is this? I'm curious. And he had that curiosity and innocence himself, I think, John. He, he, I I couldn't agree with you more, and his mentality, his personality, and the way that he looked at music in the world around him matched up perfectly with the guys in the shows, because people like Rick and David Hood and Jimmy Johnson, you know, it can't be overstated you know, the, the racial 
equality that is depicted in that in that film. Yep. Because it wasn't because I won't even pretend that it was because these guys were better people right. than anyone else in the South or anyone else in the world. They were very practical, you know, guys, and they were like, "Who's the best drummer?" Yep. I don't care what the color of the skin is. Who's the best drummer and is going to help me cut a hit? Well, then you're the drummer. Who's the best singer? Well, then you're the singer. There was absolutely no qualms at all about um, ethnicity. And and Jerry, I think Jerry looked at the world the same way. It was like, where's the next hit? Yeah. Where's the next big thing? What's What's going to move me? And he wasn't afraid to go to it. He didn't have to have it come to him. And uh, it's a it's a perfect marriage, man. Yeah. Uh, as I said, he he is he he probably was the catalyst. Let's talk about you and your and your music. Uh, I think folks know you from uh, the Civil Wars and a Grammy sure. Award winning uh, uh, a group uh, a, a duet a writing powerhouse that you know I, I you know when I first heard Poison and Wine, my wife had sent it to me and she was crying when she heard it, John. And I and I, I give you and pay you the highest tribute because I think if you can make someone cry, um, it's uh, it's and I think we all need to cry regularly. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, well, talk about talk about that. What it was like Ada to be in a in a group like that, and then ultimately you're now making your first solo record in eight years. Um, talk about the Civil Wars, that success, and then that journey to to being that solo artist you are now. Sure. Well, I won't even pretend that I had any clue whatsoever that uh, the Civil Wars would be as successful as it was. And to be honest, you know, you you mentioned it's been eight years since I made a solo record. Once I made that solo record, it was for Capitol Records and. About the time I was mixing that record, the label uh, imploded. They merged Capital with Virgin, and uh, the head of Virgin became the head of uh, all of it. So all the Virgin acts, um, they survived, and all the Capital acts that didn't have their record already out, um, we got cut. So I was in a really bitter place at that time. And so when when the Civil Wars happened. I had a completely different mentality than I had any of the years prior, whereas I was just making music to please myself. Uh, I'd done it the other way around. I had tried to play the game and and just came out of it really bitter and decided I'm, I'm only going to make music that makes me happy because at the end of the day, it is a crapshoot whether anybody else is going to connect with this. Yep. You know, I, I, can't, I can't control that at all. All I know is whether I like it. And if I stick to that criteria, I've got to hope that there's a lot of other people out there in the world that like the same things that I do. And that's, I fearlessly, selfishly started making music that way once I met Joy and and we started the Civil Wars. And so um, I won't even pretend that I saw that connection happened so fast with fans, with uh, with the public at large, and it kept stair-stepping so quickly and um, escalating so fast, and it was it was a whirlwind. It was, it, and it's kind of hard to remember a lot of it because it was uh, I had blinders on. Just okay, tell me where I need to be at this moment, and I will give you all I've got at this moment, and then tell me where I need to be right after that, and. 
and it was um at times it was a uh, it was a uh, there was bliss to it you know that I could just focus on making music but I, it was also very you know overwhelming and you know there was lots of things that were just sliding right past that I uh, I just had to trust other people to deal with and and so I wasn't super hands on after a certain amount of time because it was just literally impossible we were uh basically the record label uh, the entire time, so all the responsibility was in our laps. So I just worked as, as much and as often as humanly possible. And this is Lee Habib. We're talking to John Paul White and his new album, Beulah. It's available everywhere. Go to Amazon, buy it. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to dig into the record, more about John Paul White's life. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking to John Paul White, singer, songwriter, and at one point, uh, the Grammy Award winner with the Civil Wars. And it's a tough journey to go from that and going back to that solo career, but it's something that John Paul White was dedicated and determined to do. Uh, It was an artistic choice that he decided to make. John, let's carry on with that idea of moving from this very successful duo, but you wanting to just, well, do something else. I learned a lot during that process where, you know, again, getting back to what we were talking about, about what really is important and what, what is not, and what is, what is something that I'm willing to fight for and, and strive for and what, you know, really isn't a priority for me anymore. And so, I've gotten to do a lot of things that I wanted to do, a lot of bucket list items. And I'm at a place now that my one and only priority is, you know, being happy. And being happy is making music that I really dearly love, going and playing it for people, which I did not realize would be something that made me happy again because I was so burnt out from so much touring. Yep. But I'm, thoroughly enjoying myself playing these songs for people and making sure I don't go too much, make sure I don't leave too often, making sure that my first and, you know, that my main priority is uh, my family and my well-being and my health and, and my future. When I sense this in, in, in the new record, Beulah, and I want to talk about that word, John, because it means a lot of things to a lot of people. And I looked it up, yes. and, and my goodness. And I love a word like that. And I think your writing is very much like that. One of the things I promise I will not ask you during this interview is what does a song mean? It's the worst thing to ask a writer, and I, I, would never, I wouldn't do that to you. It's whatever we, we think it should mean. And I, my Amen. sister's a writer, and what do you think it means? I think is the only answer that matters. Uh, what does the yeah. audience think it means? But you, you pick uh, these subjects to write about that have this sort of, they're not on the nose. And they, they give space for people to lean into the song. And yet there's a structure there. But the word Beulah, why that word? Beulah is, uh, it has many different levels of meaning for me. Um, the first 
the primary reason that word is even a part of my lexicon is because of my family. My dad used to call my little sister that as a term of endearment. Um, I call my daughter that. I call my wife that. It's, it's a word that's always been around in that kind of context. And it's also, you know, my, my, my mom's Catholic, but my dad was, uh, you know, Southern Baptist. And, you know, the, the gospel songbook was a big part of their lives. And, and songs about Beulah Land were common. Yep. Uh, because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a biblical term, although I think it's only mentioned once in the Bible, but it's, a, it's definitely a common, common word in the South uh, yep. in gospel songs. Um. But for me, the larger uh, meaning of it comes from a guy named William Blake. And um, I don't pretend to be the most, uh, most well-read, intelligent guy, but, uh, and, and especially in the world of philosophy. But he's a guy that I dig you know, a lot of what he's written. And I read you know, Milton back in high school, and it yep. kind of stuck with me. But he, um, he has his own little mythology for... Uh, the way the world works, and and his phrase, he used the term Beulah for a place that you could go to, either through meditation or you know whatever, you could go there and you could center, you could heal, get it together, you know, and 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 escape from the world until you um, straighten out all the things that need to be straightened out, and you couldn't stay there, you know, it was a it was a temporary. Um, uh, harbor, yep. but when you came back to the world, you came back a little bit more whole, a little bit more prioritized, and and uh, you know I felt like there's there's no better no better word that sums up this record. Oh, that's wonderful. Let's talk about uh, a, a couple of the songs. Let's talk about what's so um, because I just mm-hmm. I watched it up on Rolling Stone's website and and listened to it. And sometimes I get distracted when I watch a video because it has nothing to do with the song or it gets in the way of the song. I love the way you did Amen. the video. I love the way you shot it. It was just simple. It served the song. It didn't get in the Thank way you. of the song. And let's take a listen. Show the road, sun on your back, shoulder the load, your ancestors pack, wear on your sleeve the virtues you lack. Talk about uh, some of the things you're getting at in that song, because I've always been around now in my life, folks who are really aware of their station in life, and mm-hmm. and talk about that, and talk about uh, folks who uh, are in these spaces, love these spaces, because I think you're writing about, in some respects, some of those things. And it's also, it feels like just a look back. Um, talk about the song. You know, we've, we've kind of touched on some of those thoughts earlier with, you know, being from being from um, Loretta, Tennessee community, which is mostly farmers, and carpenters, you know, tradesmen, you know, a lot of blue collar, if, if even that. And, you know, we, we all had a common bond in that we all really didn't have a lot. And the only people that really got ostracized, that got pushed around, were the kids that had it all. The kids that came in with the new toys and the new clothes and 
and the new TV, and they had a TV in their room or anything like that, if, they, if they, anybody ever brought that stuff up, they got bullied. They got you know completely ignored because it was you know it was the opposite way that it probably is more so nowadays. And so materialism, we would have loved to have had all that stuff. I mean, it's not because we were better kids, but it's just like that was not an option. So you know, raising elevating your stature. Um, relative to the people around you, um, that was always frowned upon. And I remember that um, heavily. Uh, my dad saying, you know, don't put on airs. Yep. You know, don't get above your raisin. Don't, you know, who's this guy think he is? You know, I know him. He, right. he picked cotton right alongside me his whole childhood. Why does he think he's better than us? You know, just because he went to college. You know, I, I heard all those conversations and i i took it to heart whether it's the way it should be or it shouldn't be it's a big part of my childhood and it's a big part of growing up as a as a male in the south is that we're all working the same row and uh some of us are a little more successful than others but that doesn't make you any different human being yeah i always tell people i always tell people so what you're a little more successful so what now what yeah i i I battle with it a lot, you know, with, with varying successes that I've had in life. It's always been with an all shucks kind of mentality, you know, even to the point of, you know, frustrating people like, why don't you just accept the, you know, the good things that have happened for you and, and be proud of those. And, and I do in my own way, but there's always just a little tinge of, of, uh, I don't know, a little bit of that Catholic guilt seeps in there or something like, why are these things happening for me? Because I know people more talented. I know people that work harder. I know people that are more deserving. Right. And so I always, everything is with a grain of salt. And I think I needed to write that song to express that, not, to, not only to articulate it for myself, but to people around me and people from my hometown that, you know, I'm still that same guy. Yeah. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. John Paul White for the hour, his new record, Bueller. Pick it up at Amazon.com. And what's American Stories, where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, and business. But one of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other in the world, which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity, protecting philanthropic freedoms, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the head of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications. Carl has authored 11 books, and most important, the book called The Almanac of American Philanthropy, 
And we get all the stories from there. Here's a story, just one, from that great collection. You know, in the process of making a philanthropic gift, people occasionally emit some silly puff of vanity. Welcome to the Blaine Chauncey III Center for Sustainability at the Chauncey Family Institute of Chauncey College. Skewering these instances of what has been called philanthropy or egonomics is a favorite way of criticizing charitable giving in the media today. But the truth is, peacock donors are not the norm. Reserve and reticence are actually far more common in the top tiers of philanthropy than egotism. Quiet, humble giving, sometimes right up to the point of anonymity, has been a norm in America since our founding. The father of our country, George Washington, was a devoted giver, but rarely a visible one. It was important to his sense of modesty that many of his contributions to charities, churches, schools, and needy individuals be made without notice. The University of Chicago was built from scratch by John Rockefeller. He put tens of millions of dollars into the effort and considered it one of his best investments ever. But he insisted that his name not be used anywhere on campus. He had created the college to be a great institution of his Baptist faith and wanted to be unattributed largely because of religious injunctions encouraging believers, which Rockefeller emphatically was, to make many of their charitable offerings out of the public eye. Drug maker Eli Lilly built a mighty private philanthropy in Indiana. He very often gave without attribution or credit. Self-effacing to the end, he even requested that there be no eulogy at his funeral. Margaret Cargill was another modest Midwesterner who was humble in the deepest way. During her lifetime, she dispersed more than $200 million from her family's grain trading fortune, always on the condition of anonymity. She believed that attention should be focused on the people carrying out charitable work, not on those giving the money. Even at the most literal level, Cargill didn't want to be recognized. When she would visit charities that she supported, she would have the director of her foundation introduce her as her aunt or mother. Living a quiet life and sharing her money without claptrap or acclaim made it easier to experience the joy of true giving, Cargill believed. Today, 17 years into the 21st century, faceless giving remains alive and well in our country. Not long after the outbreak of the Iraq-Afghanistan wars, a financial trader put up $243 million of his own money and asked that it be channeled to service members and veterans. And he did all of this anonymously. When leakers later revealed the donor to be David Gelbaum, a soft-spoken mathematician turned hedge trader, he explained that, quote, I don't think that if you give away a lot of money, you should get a lot of recognition. You shouldn't be able to buy that. One catalytic anonymous gift that opened the doors of nine Catholic schools in Memphis, Tennessee a few years ago was driven by a mix of religious motivations and desire to help educate the poor. These schools had been shuttered for years for lack of funds until two unnamed donors put up $12 million to restart them. That sparked follow-up giving totaling $60 million, and the revived schools now serve 1,500 poor children every year. The secret donors explained in an email that, quote, if these schools were a monument to certain adult benefactors, they'd be far less effective than when they are properly viewed as belonging to each individual church and neighborhood. It is about the children, not the benefactors. 
At around that same time, some donor gave an anonymous gift of $50 million to Wycliffe Bible translators so they could create versions of Scripture in the last remaining 2,000 languages lacking a translation in their own tongue. Another recent gift prominently made off the record is the $275 million given to biotech research in San Diego in 2014. That propelled the San Diego area to the forefront of international biomedical science. One of today's premier practitioners of invisible philanthropy is Chuck Feeney. An inventor of the duty-free shopping business, Feeney has given away $8 billion. He kept only $2 million of the vast fortune he earned, and he and his wife now live quietly in a rented apartment in their old age. That means he donated 99.98% of his money. You can get a little sense of the man's humility from this short clip where you'll hear from his sister, his business partner, and then Chuck Feeney himself. He was very low-key. Chuck doesn't own a car, doesn't own a house, has one pair of shoes and a $15 watch. I would be unhappy with myself if I was wasting money. As someone who naturally hates the idea of blowing your own horn, Feeney left his name out of all of his donating. Quote, I try to live a normal life the way I grew up in Blue Collar, New Jersey, he says. I set out to work hard, not to get rich. And if someone does get rich, Feeney thinks, the best way to keep your head screwed on straight is to use your wealth to help people while living simply like a normal citizen. Feeney has always walked streets unnoticed and flown coach and otherwise enjoyed a private middle American life. Some givers have religious motivations for wanting to remain out of sight. Jesus urged in his Sermon on the Mount, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. Dave Weyerhaeuser of Timber Fortune was one donor who took this Christian admonition very seriously. He gave away more than $100 million during the last half of the 20th century, and because of his faith, he did it all anonymously. Another large donor spurred by religious scruples to give out of sight was investor Stephen Adams. A classical music admirer, he donated $110 million anonymously so that all students at the Yale School of Music could attend tuition-free in the future. When he was later revealed in published reports, Adam explained that, quote, My wife and I are Christians, and the Bible speaks of giving in secret. Sometimes the appetite for anonymity starts with a desire for personal security. Gert Boyle, who earned her fortune at Columbia Sportswear, made multi-million dollar gifts publicly before shifting to an anonymous strategy after she was attacked inside her home by robbers. Prominent philanthropists David and Charles Koch now receive more than 150 annual death threats due to their giving to nonprofits that advocate for free markets and limited government. The risk of harassment is one real reason why many Americans consider the option to give anonymously a right worth fighting for. The fraction of all U.S. charity that is anonymous is not large, around 10% of individual gifts at present. But many donors view preserving that alternative to be a vital element of charitable freedom and action. Yet some activists and government officials, like the attorneys general in California and New York, are now trying to banish the off-the-record option for givers. They want to force charities to disclose the names, addresses, social security numbers, and gift sizes of all of their supporters. We live in an era where any personal action or decision, 
can and often does end up on the internet. Meanwhile, partisans increasingly proclaim themselves insulted or injured by private actions they disagree with and try to block or ban philanthropy they object to. In this stormy environment, the freedom to give money to legitimate nonprofits quietly, privately, and without public pressure is under attack. Donor Brendan Icke, founder of the software firm Mozilla, had his career ended after IRS staffers illegally leaked a list of donors to the National Organization for Marriage, showing he had made a $1,000 gift to that nonprofit, which is entirely legal and very much in the national political mainstream, but unacceptable to disapproving sexual warriors. The enemies of donor privacy, however, are going to find that millions of Americans consider it a liberty worth defending. For a whole range of reasons, givers detest attempts to expose and control private charitable decisions. There are legions of generous and public-minded citizens who will vigorously fight efforts to end donor privacy. And a great report again, as always, by Carl. And it's so true about Washington. And it goes back that far in our country's history. Silent givers the best way to give, by the way. If you've ever not done it, try it sometime. It's just at a restaurant. Just give to somebody, pay someone's bill, and say, don't, don't say who did it. It's just great. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. Sweet charity from Carl Zinsmeister. And always we do this with our folks and partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, and pick up or order their great book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And if you're thinking about a place to give your money, if you've got money to give... Uh, the Philanthropy Roundtable is terrific at disseminating money in ways that you may see fit. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We've been talking to John Paul White for the hour, and we love talking to artists and talking about artists. John Paul White, Make You Cry. Uh, talk about that song. Well, it's, you know, I, as you said earlier, I'm not very good with uh, meanings of songs because sometimes I know what they're about, sometimes I don't, but most often, um, my old mentor, his name was Walt Aldridge, and uh, he's written some two or three songs of the year in the country world back in the day and, and a brilliant songwriter. And I remember writing songs for him and he would tell me, he said, don't, don't put a, don't put a ring in the, in the song. And what he meant was he explained that you put a wedding ring on anybody's finger in the song. You have just completely left a lot of the population out of the song. They can't live inside it. They can't live vicariously through it and yep. become a character because they're not married. And right. So they don't have that point of view. And it, I really took that to heart. So I've always tried to make sure that songs had a little gray, a little vague uh, quality to it so that anybody can step inside it. So that's, you know, a, a lot of what I do that happens. And so it's, what I think it's about is not anything like what other people think it's about. And 
a lot of times what they think is about much better. Right. And I just like to take credit for that. But um, with that song, it's you know it's one of those one of those things that one of those universal things that we all want to be missed. We all want to be cared about, whether whatever the situation is that um, has two people be apart, you know, whether you wanted it, whether they wanted it, whatever, you still want there to be a little pang there. You still want there to be a little twist of the knife, no matter what. Yep. And so I feel like I'm always trying to touch on universal truths, things that, that affect everyone. And, and I still feel like those things are still out there that have, haven't been written about. And I really wanted to dig into that self-loathing, that, that self-reverence of, you know, yeah, I don't, I, I still need to be needed. Yep. And it's a universal cry ultimately. And, uh, and, and I, I would, I would think so. Yeah. And, and, and I want to talk about one other song. It, it's not on the record, but it, it's my wife's favorite song from a, from a uh, series uh, called Nashville, which um, has terrific writing in it. And Buddy Miller's sitting there, and, you know, you've got T-Bone Burnett being the musical director. And when I saw those names, I said, whether I like the plot, whether I like the acting, i got to watch this series just so I can hear the songwriting. And No One Will Ever Love You. And by the way, when you performed it, I did not know you had written that song, and I wish you'd record oh. it because, my goodness, I love Connie Britton, and I love the, the, the team that sang it. But my goodness, John, you you kill that song. Well, thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. Uh, that one has that song has been around for a while. I wrote that with uh, Steve McEwen, who's a guy that uh, from London, and uh, I wrote that with no intention of anything Nashville related. Actually, connecting with it and using it and actually getting it cut. We were just selfishly writing a song that made us both happy. And I have to give credit to T-Bone Burnett for that because when uh, he asked me, he said, I'm, I'm working on this new show. Do you have anything that you're really proud of and happy with that hasn't been used that's exclusive? And thought, well, here's a chance for me to show T-Bone a song that I'm really proud of and maybe it will spur further collaborations. So I honestly never imagined that he'd be able to use it in a, in a show about Nashville, Tennessee. But, uh, you know, to his credit, he, he pulled it off, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. Great. And I'll leave you with this because we like to play it, and it's Martin Scorsese, and he's talking about movies. But my, my sister's a writer, and I have so many friends who are musicians, and, and I don't know why, but people would always say, why do you want to do that? That's not real life. And what, what, how silly to want to be a writer and the like. And uh, so I wanted to have you listen to Martin Scorsese uh, talking to folks at the Kennedy Center about what movies were to him and to us. And in the end, what storytelling and art is to all of us. Let's Whenever take- I hear people dismiss movies as fantasy, I make a, and make a hard distinction between film and life. I think to myself that it's just a way of avoiding the power of cinema. I mean, of course, it's not life. It's the invocation of life. It's an ongoing dialogue with life. Frank Capra um, said, uh, film is a disease. <laughs> he went on, but I, that's enough for now. And, and so it sounds to me like, hey, you've caught the disease. I know songwriters. They're, in the end, because of the task at hand, I, I found them to be not dour, but just 
they're always in a place because they always have this struggle and it's a, it's a good struggle. And, and yet what I think Scorsese said about art being the invocation of life in an ongoing dialogue, we rely on the writers and uh, in the end, we Americans and people of the world for you to help us with that dialogue. And that's a heck of a burden. Well, it, it, it is that, um, I, I definitely, uh, have realized that when I write things that, whether they pertain to my life or to, you know, some sort of obvious, you know, parallel with my life, or if I go straight to, you know, using that word fantasy, if I just pull things completely uh, diametrically opposed to the way that I've always lived, I've realized that if I do it in a way that that is honest and that is heartfelt and that, uh, that I'm, I am really being mindful of um, portraying all the characters in the in the most true light. I've noticed that the way it connects with other people is it's mind boggling because as I said, if I if I keep the edges gray, the stories that people tell me about how this song meant this to me because this happened to me. And when you hear it from that context you realize, wow, I, I couldn't have written that song if I knew their story. Right. It would have skewed what I did. So I feel like, you know, all of us have, have that that power and that burden to be able to be a voice for other people that could never, you know, articulate what was going on in their lives because they either didn't have that skill set or they just couldn't couldn't put it in the words. It was too close. It was too yep. it would be too maudlin if they were in the middle of it trying to write a song about it. So I don't I don't clearly understand why I'm able to do that, and any of us as songwriters are able to do that. But I try not to, to you know, I try not to overanalyze it and just let it happen. John Paul White, the record is Beulah. Pick it up on Amazon. Maybe even pick it up at an actual store. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch and listen to all of our discussions with so many of the great artists songwriters, actors, and directors that we so love in our country.